It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with a quick episode previewing Tuesday night's vice presidential debate between Democrat Tim Kaine and Republican Mike Pence. And if you're wondering who they are, we'll get to that in a second. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. So before we get started, it's been a busy weekend. (laughs) (laughs) So it started when Donald... I presume you're talking about college football. Oh, yes. (laughs) And NFL. (laughs) Well, so it started when Donald Trump went on a pre-dawn Twitter rant attacking the former Miss Universe Alicia Machado and telling America to, quote, check out sex tape, uh, one that does not seem to exist Typical presidential affair in an election year. Also over the weekend, the New York Times published a story based on leaked pages from Donald Trump's 1995 tax filings that reveal Trump could have conceivably paid no federal income tax for about 20 years. Uh, But we don't know for sure. Can we just start with saying that part of what makes this the New York Times story even more intriguing is how they got the documents, is that Suzanne Craig, who is a veteran Wall Street reporter, was just checking her snail mail, and there was an envelope addressed to her, and the return address was, mysteriously, Trump Tower. And she opens up this envelope, and it's three pages of a tax filing that is Donald Trump's tax return. And she says she went across the newsroom and found another investigative reporter on the phone. She handed him the three documents. He looked at them and was like, I got to go on the phone and hung it up and that they went into a private room trying to uh, verify and authenticate the documents, which they did do. This did not happen on Friday. All of this happened some while ago, and they eventually found the accountant down in Florida, semi-retired 80-year-old man named Mitnick, who had done the accountant work back in the 90s for Donald Trump and previous to that for his father, Fred, and had quite a bit to say. He said, no, I can't tell you everything because I have to have permission from Mr. Trump, which has not been forthcoming. But he did authenticate the documents and explain why just these three pages, front pages from three state filings in 1995, indicated something really big about what Donald Trump was doing with his federal return. And what the documents tell us, according to The New York Times, is that in 1995, Trump declared a $916 million loss on his tax returns. And the deduction is so substantial that it, in theory, could have allowed him to avoid paying taxes for as many as 18 years. Now, we had that has not been confirmed nor denied by the Trump campaign, but the Trump campaign has not disputed any of the facts in the story. They have just simply backed up his business record. And many of Trump's defenders have noted, you know, he did take a loss uh, and that he has rebuilt back up his empire. And they don't necessarily see it as a negative. Of course, this also just goes to the narrative that Democrats have pushing about his refusal to uh, release his tax returns, questioning, um, you know, his strength as a businessman and pointing out that, uh, you know, for someone who wants to fix a lot of the problems in the country. He is not actually paid into the system any tax dollars into a system to help do those things. P.S. Our colleague Scott Horsley did a piece on NPR.org over the weekend about how it's possible and legal for Trump to not have paid any federal income taxes. And this seems like something that will surely come up, this tax issue, in the debate tomorrow night, 9 p.m. at Longwood University in Farmville, Virginia. Not Farmville, Farmville. Farmville. V-U-L. Not named after... Well, it's Louisville, too, in Kentucky. Yeah. I mean, that's just how we pronounce it. Yeah, it's just not named after the Facebook The game. Facebook app that you get annoying invitations for. Yes, that I've never played. Me neither. Okay, so this debate is between Tim Kaine and Mike Pence. Who? 
Exactly. Right. This is, I mean, I hate to say it, but how far into this podcast have we gotten? How many minutes are we in before we even started talking about these two guys? Because everything else is so much more interesting, and one of the candidates is Donald Trump. Well, and one, <laughs> one of these vice presidential candidates has described himself as boring. The other one described himself as a B-list Republican celebrity. That's that's about spot on. It that's a pretty good, pretty, hard... pretty self-aware vice presidential candidate. <laughs> it's, it's kind of amazing, actually, how self-aware and uh, self-effacing and modest they are in contrast with the people who chose them. And also, I suppose, that's why they chose them. There is a cliche about the vice presidential nominee and why they pick them. And the rule is that the number one, their number one objective is to do no harm. And by that measure, Tim Kaine and Mike Pence have been fantastic vice presidential nominees. I don't think there has been a single day since either one of them was picked that they have unintentionally driven a news cycle. That's yeah, right. I mean, there was one day where Mike Pence said that he believed President Obama was born in the United States yeah. and that he did not subscribe to birtherism. And that blipped for a second. But that was not necessarily like a negative story, right? Like they have no. not distracted from the main campaign mission. They no, have, they have not distracted from the very distracting but main, it, main stage campaign. But at the same time, voters have very little uh, understanding of who they are, where they come from, or what they stand for. So a big part of tomorrow night is simply introduction. That's okay, right. so let's fix this. Yeah. Let's make sure that the people who have their earbuds in right now, at least they will go into this debate knowing who these dudes are. Uh, so, Sue, you have covered both of them. Yes. Let's start with Mike Pence. OK, so Mike Pence is currently governor of Indiana, but he first ran for Congress in 1988 and 1990, and he lost both times. And he, through uh, about a decade of his life, worked in media. He was oh. a conservative radio commenter. He jokingly, he's very quippy uh, and he's very self-effacing. And he is self-effacingly referred to himself as Rush Limbaugh on decaf at the time. <laughs> that he has always been a very consistent conservative Republican throughout his career. But he does not use the rhetoric of a lot of uh, conservative Republicans. And he wrote a sort of mission statement after his failed congressional races that was called Confessions of a Negative Campaigner. And he made a pledge that he was never going to run these kind of mudslinging campaigns. Uh, he did not run for Congress for many years after his failed attempts. He ran again in the early 2000s and won. Uh, and he established himself in Congress, which is when I covered him. I did, I've not covered him as the governor, but I covered him in Congress. He was there for about 12 years. And he established himself as a preeminent figure, both on social conservative issues, but also economic conservative issues. And he used that record to mount his governor bid in 2012. And he has been serving as governor of Indiana ever since then. So uh, the one thing that I think people probably would know about him is the controversy over the religious freedom legislation. Can, can one of you catch us up on that? Well, the religious freedom legislation was designed to allow people to make an objection if they were asked to perform a service for a gay couple. Say a gay couple was getting married and they wanted a wedding cake and the people who made wedding cake said, no, we're sorry, we object to that and we won't make it for you. Well, people who did that were subject to a lawsuit and they wanted protection from those lawsuits and this law was designed to give them that and of course then it it blew up a lot of opposition and a lot of corporations and sports facilities, uh, sports organizations like the NCAA, which is headquartered in Indianapolis, uh, said, 
no, look, that's discriminatory and it really sets a lot of our people off. So we're not going to have our headquarters possibly in the future in Indianapolis. And they had a lot of big corporations that were getting blowback on this as well. So they decided they would modify it. And this is one of those times when Mike Pence, although he is a very principled conservative, he always says, I'm a Christian first, a conservative second, a Republican third. But he does know how to trim when he has to. He found a middle ground whereby the worst consequences did not happen to his state, economically speaking. So he signed the initial bill and then was involved in walking it back. And then signed a a follow-up piece of legislation that uh, walked it back and toned down the concerns that it would allow for gay discrimination, which in doing that really angered a lot of evangelical Christians who supported the original law. I mean, it really was at the end a scenario in which he had angered literally everybody in that debate. Okay, quickly, family, kids, religion. In a lot of ways, Mike Pence and Tim Kaine are in very similar uh, footing walking into this debate. They are peers. I think believe they're 57 and 58 years old. They're both married. I think they both of their spouses play very prominent roles, both in the campaign and in their lives. I think their spouses, aside from just spousal support, I think they are their constant companions on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Pence is, uh, was raised Catholic and became an evangelical Christian. And his wife and him will often pray together before their appearances. And they both have sons that are Marines. So they both have sons in the military, which is also unique to them. And both uh, Tim Kaine and, yes, Tim, and Mike Pence. And Tim Kaine, like similarly, they're you know very close with his wife and also um, a very devout Catholic. And I think that their faith has been a guiding force in both of their lives. All right, let's turn to the other guy, Tim Kaine, America's dad. Yes, <laughs> America's yeah. dad driving the minivan with the snacks in the back, <laughs> wearing mom jeans. But Tim Kaine's the kind of guy who has really touched all of the stations on his way up. Uh, you know, going to law school and then running for the Richmond City Council. But before he did those things, while he was still a student in law school, he went off as a missionary to Central America, a Catholic missionary, and he is a very devout Catholic. And he has had to thread the needle, as other Catholic nominees of the Democratic Party have done, between their personal views with respect to abortion and other issues, and their political views with respect to how they would make laws. So despite his faith and despite his reservations about abortion, Tim Kaine has a 100% rating from Planned Parenthood, the very organization that Mike Pence has been trying to defund for all these years. So that's a point of that's a point of clash, and it's also a point of shared personal interest between these two candidates. Uh, the other thing then, of course, that he did after he uh, finished law school and got involved in politics was he kept going up. He went from the Richmond City Council to being the mayor of Richmond, then he became the lieutenant governor of Virginia, then the governor of Virginia, and now he's the United States senator from Virginia and has been remarkably popular all the way through and has very high approval ratings from the people in Virginia and has almost assuredly helped Hillary Clinton move out to a pretty commanding lead in polls in Virginia. One of the most interesting things to me about him, and I, and I think you've covered some of this, Sue, is that his father-in-law mm-hmm. and and his he goes to a black Catholic church. Yeah. I mean, he civil rights has always been the course that I think has run through his life, even before he was ever running for elected office. When he was a Richmond, when he was an attorney, he was a defense attorney in many cases, and he also fought housing discrimination suits. His wife, Anne, is the daughter of former Republican Governor Linwood Holton, who desegregated the Virginia schools. His wife was one of the first white students to go to an all-black school. So her family was very well known within the state of Virginia. Uh, And when they married, they moved to Virginia. 
Uh, I think that 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 is an issue that is like not just him, but his wife and their whole family have provoked that issue, particularly in Southern politics, when that was not always the easiest or more popular thing to do. Um, I think one of the things that Kane is probably most remembered for is when he was governor, uh, the Virginia Tech shooting occurred, which at the time had been uh, one of the worst mass shootings in American history. And he uh, was widely credited for his handling of that matter and and legislation that came out of that tragedy and how he worked with the families. Uh, He's also incredibly close with President Obama. He was the first elected official outside the state of Illinois to endorse Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton in 2007, which again, as we sit here today, does not seem like that big of a deal, but at the time was heretical to the Democratic establishment. (laughs) And I would include myself in this group that I was always suspect that Tim Kaine would be the vice presidential nominee because the Clintons are the ultimate loyalty politicians and picking someone who wasn't on her side back in 2007, I always thought was one of the biggest marks against him. That's right. But Tim Kaine and Hillary Clinton seem to have formed um, a very likable partnership. They seem to get along very well on a personal level, and she, and they don't know each other very well. They didn't serve together in Congress. She was he was the DNC chairman under President Obama. He worked for President Obama, uh, and so they are both the nominees and their vice presidential candidates have had a get to know you time as well. You know, voters are trying to get to know these nominees, but so are their candidates. You could say that Tim Kaine was a kind of human bridge between Hillary Clinton and the forces that had been with her in 2008 and the Obama administration and the people who had always felt much more loyalty to Obama and his part of the party than hers. And her acceptance of him, her reaching out to him, was... I think an antidote to a lot of that bad feeling still present in the Democratic Party. And I think we were all surprised that she was capable of doing that. But it was something that was seen as a positive note. Very quickly, in terms of the debate, is there sunlight between the person at the top of the ticket and the number two? And is that likely to come out in any ways that are interesting? That's a good question. I mean, I think the question is sort of like, what is the what is the purpose of this debate? Like, what is Tim Kaine and Mike Pence's mission going in there? And one, I think that they have to I mean, there's still this part of the vice presidential debate where the question is, if something were to happen to the nominee, is this somebody that I can actually picture being in the Oval Office? So they have to build up their own credibility. But I, I'm not sure that their challenge is as much to highlight the differences between their candidate as much as they are there to validate their candidate. There is an issue that both of these candidates have switched their position on in deference to the top of the ticket, and that's TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the the trade bill of the day that has been you know painted in terrible colors by both parties in the primaries. So, of course, now Hillary Clinton says she's against the TPP because in its final form, it's et cetera, et cetera. And Donald Trump's been running against it for over a year and a half. So everyone's against TPP now in Washington, even though before that everyone in Washington was more or less for it. And that includes both Tim Kaine and Mike Pence, who are now both against it, having been previously for it. Uh, There are a lot of other things, though, that Mike Pence could be called on. He was very hostile to Donald Trump's ban on all Muslims entering the country, at least temporarily, Mm -hmm. when that came up late last year. Mike Pence was always a defender of the Iraq war, which Donald Trump now says he was against from the beginning. Which is not true, but... Which is not true, but which uh, is his stated position. So, you know, obviously Mike Pence has to reconcile himself with whatever the stated position is. Entitlement reform, which has always been an absolute pillar of Mike Pence's politics. We have to get a grip on Social Security and Medicare. Donald Trump says no problem with either. Donald Trump has no problem with Planned Parenthood, which we've talked about. And they have a big, big difference on LGBT rights. 
Well, that's also what's interesting, too, is it's not necessarily what the difference. Having to ask Mike Pence to defend his candidate is partly what they're there to do. And the same thing with Tim Kaine. I, I think one of the criticisms about the first debate or one of the critiques of the first debate is a lot of things were left on the table. Right. We never, we, they did not talk about Benghazi, which is clearly an issue for a lot of voters. Donald Trump was not asked about a ban on Muslims entering the country. He was not asked about his foundation's gifts to the Florida attorney general before she decided not to investigate Trump University. Nor was Hillary Clinton asked about her foundation that she has with her family. Correct. So, so there's there's a lot there's there <laughs> to put these candidates' feet to the fire to defend their would-be bosses on these issues that voters still have a lot of questions about. These are also two guys who govern states in very different economic climates. And they're probably going to compare each other's records, which may be like apples and oranges. Uh, well, yeah. I, I mean, one, Tim Kaine was governor as the economy was tanking. He was the recession governor. He was there at at the beginning of the recession. He was down for he was there for the fall down story. And Mike Pence became governor in 2012 when the economy was covering. So the narrative, the economic narratives when they are governor are very different. And there is an argument to make that neither one of them individually had much control over those circumstances. But that doesn't matter when you're running for office. I think we're going to hear Mike Pence say that when he became governor of Indiana in 2013, right after the 2012 election, the unemployment there was 8.4 percent above the national average. And um, in August, unemployment in his state was down to 4.5, which was slightly below the national average. And when Tim Kaine became governor in January of 2006, unemployment was 3.2 percent. The economy was humming. And then when he left office, uh, unemployment in Virginia was 7.4 percent, 2010, of course, being at the height of the Great Recession. Okay, so, Ron, (laughs) does this matter? I I mean, maybe it will be entertaining television, though that's unclear. Um... Can Pence and Kane be entertaining television? <laughs> That's well, this a is a question. Okay, so it's, it's going to be marginally entertaining television. Does it matter? Does it affect the race? Does it affect the way voters think? First, it's going to be entertaining because it's 2016. And anything that affects the ultimate outcome of November 8th or could possibly affect it is going to draw a big audience. So it'll be interesting from that standpoint. And because everyone's so fascinated with these personalities at the top, they'll wait to see how they're defended by these two men, as as Susan was saying. All right. What about the past? We've had vice presidential debates since 1976 in every cycle except 1980, long story. And (laughs) each time, I would submit that with one exception, whoever came away from that vice presidential debate looking like the stronger candidate for vice president turned out to have been on the ticket that was going to win. Whether there's a causal relationship there is really debatable. But the only time that there was clearly a stronger performance by one of the candidates and that person never became vice president was Lloyd Benson in 1988. Mm. Tell us about this. He looked the part. It's silver-haired, tall, wonderfully sonorous fellow who actually probably could have been a pretty strong vice president and who knows what else. And delivered maybe the best political burn in history? Yep. And uh, Dan Quayle, the Republican nominee who was on his way to becoming vice president, walked right into it when he said that he had had about as much experience. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. And in response to that, Lloyd Benson, who was perfectly loaded for bear, unloaded. Senator Benson. Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. 
So Dan Quayle did get to be vice president despite that moment, and yet he really never escaped the burn of that particular moment. And, of course, there were many other incidents that came afterwards that did not help him either. Like potato. Like potato. So watch the debate, but it might not matter at all in the end. Yes, watch the debate. And yes, it will matter. It will matter in this way. It may not determine who wins in November. It probably won't. It may not even influence how one state votes. It probably won't. But it will tell us more about these candidates, and it will tell us more about two people, either of whom is going to be a heartbeat from the presidency. And let's face it, these are the two oldest candidates for president we've ever had from the major parties. And there's a chance for a pop culture moment if someone says or does something really memorable. That's why I'm watching. (laughs) Well, some of our listeners, if they're watching, may want to play along at home. So if we were putting together a VP debate bingo card, what would be on that bingo card? Uh, For Mike Pence, the one thing he has said consistently throughout his career is, I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. So if he says that tonight, uh, very good odds on hearing something along those lines and him promoting particularly his faith. Uh, Other words, Obamacare? Yeah, Obamacare. Benghazi. Foundation, foundation, foundation. Private server. Yes, and of course there are foundations on both sides. So we will hear about both foundations in all likelihood. So foundation is a great word. Wall, Muslim ban, taxes. I feel like we could hear that from either of them. That's true, but you know what? Some of these are going to fall out because you would have expected to hear all of those in the first debate between the presidential candidates and did not hear many of them. I just hope Tim Kaine does not do his Donald Trump impression because it's not very good. But maybe he'll speak Spanish. First candidate to speak Spanish, you can have some tequila. (laughs) However, we will not be drinking because we will be watching. We will be doing the NPR politics team is once again going to do a live fact check of this debate. So we'll be watching very carefully. And of course, NPR and NPR One will have special coverage of the debate Tuesday night. So that is a wrap for now. Um, But a quick word on your emails to the show. We are starting to get a lot of them, more than we can actually answer. But just know that even if we don't reply to your email or question, we are reading everything that comes in. And it's really valuable to hear your feedback. And we love them. And sometimes we send them around to each other and feel fuzzy. Um, So thank you for writing to us at nprpolitics at npr.org. We will be back with a new episode first thing Wednesday morning with a recap and analysis of the vice presidential debate. And of course, tune in to npr.org and NPR for our live fact check and live coverage. Until then, keep up with our coverage on your local public radio station or your NPR One app. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm not Ron Elving. Ron Elving is a friend of mine. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. (laughs) And I'm speechless. Can I say that? (laughs) And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.